Hey everyone, it's Erica Henry, Network Pastor of Holy Districts, and you're listening to the Holy District Podcast. We are in week four of our Psalm-ish series, and I got to tell you, I've been having a good time doing this with y'all. I think this is my last week that I'll be contributing a song and a reflection, but I believe we have a couple more songs and reflections coming from other people and pastors in the Holy District Network, so hope you'll stay tuned for some other voices and some other Psalms-ish to consider together. Today we are listening to a song that has been really important to me during some very difficult seasons in my life. It's called That I Would Be Good by Alanis Morissette. And no surprises here, we are going to be meditating on the biblical theme of goodness, which we've talked about at some points earlier in the Holy District podcast catalog, but I think it's always worth revisiting. And so we'll listen to the song We'll probably have some time where you and I chat (laughs) or I chat and you listen. And then we will do a bit of a scripture reflection on a passage in 1 John. So if that sounds all right to you, then we will kick this off with Alanis Morissette, that I would be good.
Okay, so once again, this is a song that has been really meaningful to me, and I discovered my Spotify year in review thing that it made for me this year, categorized me as a certain kind of listener, and I can't remember the label it was, but essentially it meant that I find songs that I really love and then I stay committed to them, (laughs) Uh, and that's true. This is a song that has been you know, really meaningful to me for years and years. And admittedly, coming in to record this episode, I probably could analyze or think about or share about the elements in the song fifteen from 15 different perspectives. But uh, I decided to take a really particular path today. And so our roadmap for our discussion today is really to do a bit of a comparative analysis between 
cultural ideals of goodness, um, thinking about United States culture, since that's my context, and um, how this song, I think, provides a really stunning and vulnerable critique of cultural ideas of what makes us good. And then I also want to do a bit of a, mm -hmm, I I want to do a scathing critique of the Christian subculture uh, and ideals of goodness, but I'll I'll try to keep it. (laughs) I'll try to keep it gracious. But I think we have enough difference um, that the Christian subculture adds as a layer to the way that we think about our goodness or whether we are good or whether we can be good that needs to be reflected on and needs to probably be deconstructed to a large degree. So we'll do that. Uh, we'll use Genesis chapter one and maybe a little bit of three to, to do that. And then we'll end with a little bit of a scripture reflection on first John. So to begin with, I just want to look at the lyrics in this song and what Alanis is identifying as some of the things that are, I don't know, burdensome when we think about our ability to be good. I mean, it's a very simple song. The lyric structure is very repetitive that I would be good even if, and then she lists a a number of different things that she could experience or lose or could happen to her that I think she's expressing or wondering, can I be good even when these things that have been communicated to me are what create my goodness aren't there? So in the first verse, she talks about, um, you know, yearning for goodness, even if she doesn't have achievements or even if she doesn't get validation or if she's not physically healthy or if she doesn't maintain the cultural standard of beauty that, you know, can I be good even if I didn't do anything, even if I wasn't earning some sense of value, does my goodness come from what I can do and achieve or does it come from somewhere else that I would be good even if I got the thumbs down. And I think this is funny because this song I think was, I think it came out in like 1995 or something. And so this is before social media. So the thumbs down, I think for Alanis was like a literal thumbs down. Like someone literally tells you like, I don't like you. (laughs) Um, I'm not into what you're doing. You don't get my approval. And now uh, in 2023, We have all these like extra layers of technology and social media accounts that let people literally give us thumbs down or tech, you know, technologically and we get upvoted or we, you know, things can go viral or not. And this metaphor can, you know, just really expand in our current cultural moment that I would be good if I got and stayed sick thing I do know about Alanis Morissette is that she had struggled with eating disorders up or at least an eating disorder up until this point in her life. And so this, this eating disorder and her health were, you know, really tied up in her yearning for goodness and, and worth and value. 
And then that makes more sense of the final line of this verse where she's asked, you know, if that I would be good, even if I gained 10 pounds. Now this certainly resonates beyond eating disorders and, and speaks to the expectation or the connection of health and alignment with beauty standards to our cultural sense of goodness. Now this, you know, changes from generation to generation and even, you know, more quickly than that. But this, uh, the, the prevalence of ableism in our society and the just deep, deep woundedness within our understanding of beauty and all of the consumerism that is upheld by changing beauty standards for both women and men. And Alanis is, is wondering or, or saying that she could be good. Would she be good? Even if all of these things were a no-go, if she didn't achieve anything, if she didn't get validated by others, if she wasn't healthy or beautiful according to the world's standards or the cultural standards, would she still be good? The other verses go through items like wealth and being financially secure, youthfulness, having power or status or control, having knowledge or being more intellectual than others. And the final verse addresses the desire to be good, or actually she changes uh, the, the wording in verse two and verse three to be loved when she's not feeling emotionally strong, when she's not independent or invincible when she's not mentally well or with or without a romantic partner that I would be good that I would be fine that I would be great that I would be loved even if I didn't have these things even if I didn't meet these standards it's a pretty comprehensive look at the areas in our life where we have been taught either implicitly or explicitly to get our sense of goodness or value from. I mean, think about it. If, if you had to choose one of those categories or two or three, what, which ones would you say you have learned would make you good? Achievement, validation, being healthy or beautiful, being wealthy, maintaining your youthfulness, having some kind of power or social status, being really smart or being tough and resilient and not needing others or having someone who wants you and tells you you're good and and wants to be romantically engaged with you. I mean, these are the things. These are the things that we learn from our culture They're written into our script. These are the ways that we know or sense whether we are good. And this whole song, Alanis, is yearning for a goodness that can be found even if these things aren't there, even when these things aren't there. Now, this this is complicated by what I alluded to earlier. I believe a Christian subculture of what it means to be good. Because not only do Christians, not only are Christians formed by our culture, so Christians in the United States, 
are formed by the culture uh, here in the United States. So we have all of these things that are going on. But then what happens is we, if we are not thinking critically, if we are not open to the uh, ability to experience repentance, if we don't understand the structures and the power of sin that is at work in our world, that is deceiving us and um, accusing us, then we will not only just take all of these categories that Alanis outlined as, yeah, those things are a part of what defines or determines my goodness. What happens is we take that, we overlay that onto our theological beliefs, and then we add a moral layer about goodness. So now goodness isn't just about your ability to earn it or achieve it or maintain your goodness through these various categories. Now there's the idea of being a good person in the sense of what you do and how you act and whether you are good enough ethically or in your character in order to deserve going to heaven, maybe? I don't know. Did you guys experience anything like this? When I was growing up in the church, uh, I was taught an evangelism strategy where the primary question, if you were going to go like, you know, accost someone on the street, um, is that you would ask them if you were to die today, would, do you know if you would go to heaven or to hell? And, um, then most people, you know, would say heaven. And then the next question that you were coached to ask is, well, how do you know you're going to go to heaven? And there was like one right answer and there were a million wrong answers. But um, the, the the idea and the expectation from this evangelism approach was that the majority of people would say, yeah, I think I'm going to go to heaven. And the reason why is because I'm a good person. And from that point forward, the evangelism strategy was to then prove to that person that they were not a good person. In fact, even if they were the most amazing person ever, but if they had even taken one wrong step that they would be deserving and guilty, uh, they would be guilty and deserving of spending an eternity being tormented in hell. And the good news was that if they said a certain prayer, then they could know that they were okay and that they would go to heaven. And in the time between now and heaven, they should really read their Bible and pray and try their best to be good because God made a sacrifice for them and now they owe him everything. I'm not exaggerating this at all. I wish I was talking about it now. I really wish I was. And so this, you know, evangelism comes from a word in Greek that means good news, euangelion. Um, so the good news that we were being trained to share with people is that they were terrible. And that even if they had made one little mistake in their life, that, that they were so terrible and so depraved that they deserve to be tortured for eternity. And, uh, wait, there's more. God loves us so much that he's willing to torture his son on your behalf and if you say this prayer, then that means you have your ticket to heaven. And and then that was just kind of it. <laughs> um, I, I did that to people. Like I, I had that conversation with people. And I'm really grateful that repentance is, is an, has been available to me in my life because I look back on that and I think, oh my gosh, I had so, I had so many misconceptions 
about God and the nature of God and how God sees me and sees the world. And, um, this, this understanding, this way of thinking about the good news, this way of thinking about goodness, I think is deeply problematic. Not only that, I think it's actually pretty unbiblical when you look at the story that the entire Bible is telling about God's relationship to humankind and to all of creation. I mean, this is why in the Holy District, one of our key affirmations is the very goodness of humankind. Because we go to the first pages of the Bible and we see God creating everything, including human beings. He makes human beings in God's image and God's likeness blesses human beings. And then afterward, it says in Genesis chapter one, verse 31, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So this whole entire first chapter of Genesis, God's creating stuff and calling it good and God's creating stuff and seeing it and calling it good. And then he makes human beings and he looks back over everything that, that God has made, and he sees that it is very good. So when God says that human beings are very good, what we interpret that to mean <laughs> actually is based on some cultural assumptions. You may not think that, or you may not have considered that, but the idea of something being good has, is not a standard idea across time and culture. Even so, uh, if we move a couple pages forward and go to Genesis chapter 3 and what's considered the fall or the rebellion of Adam and Eve, what is at stake is a tree in the center of the Garden of Eden that often Bibles translate uh, as the tree of knowing good and evil. This translation biases our thinking to understand those categories, good and evil in terms of a moral or ethical framework. So there are good and evil choices. There are good and evil behaviors. And that's that's a pretty modern way to think about these words. Now, in the original language, which was ancient Hebrew, the words for good and evil are tov and ra. And really smart people have done really uh, much more enjoyable things and works on this than I can do. But just suffice it to say that uh, a better translation, and I learned this from Tim Mackey of the Bible Project, for the tree is more likely the tree of knowing good and bad. Because a good tree, or to, to use a tree as an example, Um, A tree that is good in the ancient Hebrew mindset is a tree that functions. It's a tree that works. It's a tree that produces fruit. Uh, It's a tree that looks nice. These are all things that are associated with the word tov. And then ra, its antonym, is the opposite. It's something that doesn't work. It's something that doesn't uh, do what its intended purpose is. Something like a, a fruit that has spoiled can be described as a raw fruit. So there's nothing unethical or evil about a fruit that has spoiled, that it's re- you know, reached its point where it's no longer okay to eat. It just isn't fulfilling its function anymore. It, it, it's not 
able to do what it was meant to do. And so when we think about the first few pages of the Bible with a more of an ancient Hebrew understanding of the word good and bad, it might help us to reframe a lot of things. For example, is is it fair to assume, as many do, that everything on the first in the first week of creation as it's recorded in Genesis 1 was was perfect in the way that we imagine that word. When we I hear people talk about everything in the garden, everything was perfect. And that isn't the language that's used to describe the garden or creation. The word that's used is good. It's tov. Now there are Hebrew words for perfect. They're not used here. What is being described, at least if you pay attention to the vocabulary in the text as it is, is a a place where God has ordered and created wholeness and functionality, goodness. And in the center of this place is a tree that offers humankind a choice to trust God in determining what is good and what is bad, what is tov and what is raw, or to take that decision for themselves and decide what is tov and what is raw. And the way the story goes and continues to go is that human being always reaches for the fruit, always reaches for the ability to determine for themselves what is good, where does goodness come from. So with the overlay then of Christian subculture, where we we take a primarily moral approach to goodness, we are contending not only with all of these cultural understandings of being good as something that we have to earn and maintain, but then we also are adding this other layer of achievement where we have to perform for God, that we have to kind of be morally perfect in order to feel secure in our relationship with God. And I, and I love how Alanis Morissette's song just kind of interrupts this thought process, if we will let it. She even, I think, in her parallelism, in her lyrics of this song, gives us a better way of thinking about our goodness than some of these modern constructs that have come from a particular Christian subculture. You notice that in the song, she starts out by saying that I would be good, that I would be good, that I would be good. In verse two, she moves on to say that I would be fine. So there's that functionality, like I'll be okay. I'll be okay. Even if I went bankrupt, I'd be fine. I'd be okay. Even if I lost my youth and I aged, she then moves on to say great that I, that I would be great. Even if I didn't have these things that people typically associate with greatness And she ends using the words loved and good interchangeably. That I would be loved even when I numb myself. That I would be good even when I'm overwhelmed. That I would be loved even when I'm clingy, when I'm fuming. So here she is when she gets down to the bottom of it, the thing that she yearns for more than anything 
is that she would be okay, that she would be good, that she would be acceptable, that she would be loved even when she doesn't feel okay, even when she's not at her best, even when she's not able to achieve the things that she wants to or others feel like she should be able to achieve. Am I still worth loving? Am I still okay? And now, as I've stayed on the journey with Jesus and thankfully made it through those early days with those unfortunate evangelism strategies I was taught, I have come to understand and to see a God revealed in the person of Jesus who loves us and accepts us in the midst of all of our pain, our shortcomings, our inability to be perfect, who loves us when we feel out of control, when we are unwell, when we don't know what to do. God does not have a need of us to perform for God. God doesn't need us to achieve our goodness. It is something that he gave to us when he created humankind. There's a concept in Christian theology that's called original sin. And it's the idea that all people inherit sinfulness from Adam and Eve. We like to talk at Holy District about original goodness that even more original to being human than sin is being very good. And so how would your sense of self change if you believed that your goodness was not something that could be taken away from you? Yes, there are times when you will make morally good or bad decisions. Yes, There are ethical considerations that I'm not trying to dismiss totally. But if there's a category for understanding goodness as our value and our ability to receive and be loved by God and and then by others, what if that's actually not up for grabs at all? How would that change your relationship to all of those categories about what you do and who affirms you and who doesn't and how healthy or able you are or how beautiful you are or how wealthy you are or how how much power you have or whatever it might, might be? What if there was an inherent goodness that was given to you by your creator who loves you that none of those things can actually touch? There's a famous author and book, uh, John, John Steinbeck. He wrote East of Eden. And there's a quote in that book that I just so love. He says, and now that you don't have to be perfect, you can be good. I think this is the kind of relationship that Jesus wants to offer to you that we can just decrease the pressure of thinking that we can somehow earn our goodness 
in relationship to others or relationship to God. That we were never intended to be perfect. We were intended to be whole and to function according to our purpose, which is to love God and to love others. And that those are that function is not tied to your ability to be perfect, but it's tied to your relationship to the giver of life and to the giver of wisdom to God. If you didn't have to be perfect, if you didn't have to be worried about achieving your goodness and your worth and your your right standing with God, you could use all of that time and energy that's typically used up in anxiety and overfunctioning to actually be transformed into a more accurate version of the you that was made good from the beginning. Now, I want to end our conversation today with a just a reflection on a passage in 1 John chapter 4. I'm going to read from verse 7 to verse 19. Here we go. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God But if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us.
up this podcast today by telling you, I may not know you personally, but what I know because of what I believe about the scriptures is that you were made in the image of a God who loves you. You are good because you were made in the image of a good and loving God. No, you're not perfect. I'm not perfect. We've got a ways to go. We have got a lot of ways to grow and we're not done on our journey of becoming. But from here to there and into eternity, your goodness has never been something that you had to earn. It's always been something that God has given to you. So now that you know you don't have to be perfect, how about we go and be good together. I'm so glad you're listening today. I hope that you'll keep listening. We're going to hear from some other folks from the Holy District in the coming weeks. If you'd like to chat, you can reach out to me, my email, erica at holydistrict.org, E-R-I-C-K-A at holydistrict.org, or find us on Facebook or Instagram at Rediscover Sacred, and we would love to get in touch. I'm really grateful for you and the journey that you are on. And I hope that the Holy District is a special part of that. We'll talk to you next week. The Holy District is a network of people who are dedicating their lives to grassroots, Jesus-centered community building. We're trying to rediscover the sacred and the everyday spaces where we already live, work, and play. And we're so grateful that you are along on the journey. Talk to you soon.